So about halfway through my Gran Turismo screening, to my surprise, the projector stopped. A Sony representative then came out, came to my seat, and asked me for $10 to finish the film. I can't believe it. They really captured the spirit of the video game. Hello, and welcome to this week's High Adrenaline-filled episode of Post Credits with Gil Garcia. On the driving line today, we have Sony's Gran Turismo, based on a true story. (laughs) Alright guys, today's episode is going to be very jam-packed. We have a few surprises on today's docket that I'm ready to share and gush about. Uh, First of all, I want to talk about the fact that today I will be giving you guys a bit of a ranking towards the later half of the episode. I'm going to break down the 10 video game adaptations that have seen the big screen in the past 10 years, and I'm going to rank them accordingly, and I'm also going to go over where Gran Turismo falls on that ranking list, so I'm pretty excited to do that today. We also have a change of format to Act 3. You know, before in the past, I would be doing Act 3 would be the box office breakdown as well as filmmaking factoids and what have you. But today, we're going to do things a little bit different. I won't be talking about the box office this week, but instead, I will be going into filmmaking factoids and that ranking, like I told you. So it's going to be a pretty fun episode. I feel like we have a lot to work with. So that begs the question Does Gran Turismo cross the checkered flag or does it crash and burn? Let's get into the review. This is Act 1. Alright, so Gran Turismo is based on the unbelievable, inspiring story of a team of underdogs, a struggling working-class gamer, a failed former race car driver, and an idealistic motorsport exec who risk it all to take on the most elite sport in the world. Gran Turismo is directed by Neil Blomkamp, famous for District 9, Chappie, Elysium, and it stars Archie Medeque as Jan Martinborough, David Harbour as Jack Salter, Orlando Bloom as Danny Moore, and Jimon Hansu as Steve Martinborough. I want to disclaim the episode by letting y'all know that I am a huge xbox and forza motorsport fan i love forza horizon so i went into this film with extreme prejudice and hatred (laughs) i'm just joking uh but i am a forza fan but uh the gran turismo franchise has always been a prestigious title in the playstation playbook it always sells really well it also kind of flies under the radar in the eyes of the consumers people know what they are getting when they buy a gran turismo video game The reason why I say it falls under the radar is because it doesn't give you the staples of the PlayStation brand like, you know, Horizon Zero Dawn, Spider-Man, God of War, The Last of Us. You don't have your Nathan Drakes, your Kratos, your Aloy, or Ellie and Joel. It's, It's a car racing simulator, so obviously it's all about the cars. I used to play Gran Turismo a lot when I was a kid because as a kid, I grew up on PlayStation. Then I transitioned over to Xbox when I reached my teens and early 20s. So, true story. When I was about 12 years old, I spent the night at my neighbor's house across the street from me. His name was Alex, who was one of the only people in the neighborhood who actually owned a PlayStation 2 at the time. So for shits and giggles one night, we fired up Gran Turismo 3. 
And we decided to do the craziest thing. We maxed out the laps on a single course and did a 100 lap race. And I kid you not, that shit took like over two hours to complete. It was exhausting. It felt like the video game version of the 24 hours of Le Mans. <laughs> we had to take breaks in between the race. We had to get snacks and sodas and, uh, you know, use the restroom and stuff. But two hours to complete a single race. That's what you call an endurance race. <laughs> so, but funnily enough, I remember from that two hour race, it actually came down to the wire at the end. And you'd feel like after two hours of racing, there would be like overlaps and huge gaps between the vehicles and stuff. But no, like we were literally neck and neck throughout the entire race. And at the end, I ended up beating Alex by like one or two seconds. And it was just a, a really fun time. And that's probably the best experience I ever had with the Gran Turismo video game franchise. As of course, over the years, I transitioned from being primarily a PlayStation gamer to an Xbox gamer, to which it meant that I began playing games like Forza Motorsport, Project Gotham Racing, Burnout, Split Second, Pure, Need for Speed, and my favorite, and not a lot of people talk about this video game a lot, Blur. Blur was like Mario Kart, but with streetcars. It was fucking amazing. If you have a chance to go out and buy a copy of Blur for the Xbox 360 or PlayStation 3, I highly recommend it. That game is amazing. Uh, so Gran Turismo always kind of felt a bit too corporate, a little bit too stale and boring for my taste as I grew up because I, I started liking arcade racers. Uh, Forza Horizon was out in 2012 and then of course Burnout, Split Second, Pure, and uh, Blur itself, they're arcade racers. They're meant to be hyper-focused, hyper-stylized. Um, they're not intended to be simulators, which Gran Turismo is. And as the premier racing simulator, Gran Turismo has been the apex predator of the racing genre for many, many years. But times have changed with the gaming industry. And sadly, that meant that Gran Turismo was going to become subject to modern business practices. And it's been a huge detriment to the reputation of Gran Turismo that these business practices like microtransactions, they're, they've become a cheap blight on the hobby of video games. And as such, Gran Turismo started implementing them into their video games. And most notably, Gran Turismo 7, which is the latest release for PlayStation, it was very much plagued with microtransactions. You know, it started as a practice where game studios can earn like a quick buck by offering like digital content and stuff for real money. But with this latest installment, Gran Turismo locked a lot of vehicles and tracks away from their player base, which is why the intro of the episode, I said that some guy came up to me in my chair and asked for 10 bucks. It's because I legitimately hate the idea that you can pay $70 for the entry point of a video game then get forced to buy cars and stuff in the game that is essential that can give you a competitive advantage for additional money on top of the $70 that you're paying for. And that's part of the reason why I love Forza Horizon and Forza Motorsport so much. They refrain from in-game purchases like this. Yeah, sure, they'll have the occasional car pack, but there are over... 200 vehicles in every single Forza game that you can earn just by playing the game and they give the cars out freely and willingly it's not like you have to go into a car shop grind for five hours just to be able to afford a Nissan GTR or a Lamborghini Huracan you know you actually 
can invest your time wisely in Forza games, whereas with Gran Turismo, it is very much predatory on its player base. And that's caused me to have a lot of disdain for Gran Turismo as a video game. And with that being said, will my indifference to the video game's practices, are they going to transition to what I think about the movie? I had to ask myself, is the film going to be better? Is it going to elevate the source material where I can look past the fact that Gran Turismo has become one of the most predatory video games on the marketplace? I think it's about time we get into the actual review of the film and find out. So let's get to act two. All right, so the past 10 years have given us some great driving movies. I mean, some of the best of all time. I mean, we saw Mad Max Fury Road, Ford versus Ferrari, and Rush, and with Gran Turismo... I think my interest was peaked even more because Neil Blomkamp signed on to direct. Blomkamp, of course, is known for the Academy Award-nominated District 9. Elysium was kind of underwhelming, and Chappie was a complete disaster. But the one thing I do like about Neil Blomkamp is that he is actually a video game director. He's always had a keen eye and interest in video game adaptations. He even directed a short film on YouTube for Halo in hopes that it would get funded for a big screen adaptation. Neil Blomkamp, for the longest time, was attached to a live adaptation of Halo on the big screen. But sadly, things kind of fell apart. One reason why I wanted to see the Halo movie that he had envisioned was because I always appreciated his eye for science fiction filmmaking. He has this way of telling these gritty, grounded, dirty, futuristically apocalyptic crime stories. And I think the setting of Halo and New Mombasa and the entire universe that Halo is in would have been a perfect candidate for his style of filmmaking. But... As I said, the film didn't come to fruition, and instead, 343 Industries and Microsoft partnered with Paramount to make the Halo television series for Paramount+, Plus, which ended up being a bomb. I I absolutely hated that television series, I'm going to be honest with you. As a big Halo fan, I hated it so much. And I'm just brokenhearted over what could have happened if Neil Blomkamp actually directed Halo instead of going with this cheap-looking... Uh, television series that they ended up deciding on. He then went, moved on to Chappie, which bombed critically and financially, and I think that was the start of Blomkamp's fall out of good graces with Hollywood. He then turned his focus on developing like an indie video game and smaller independent films. So it was kind of interesting when this film was announced that Blomkamp would be the one directing it. It's an interesting career turn for him. Not only is it still in the line of what he's passionate about, video game adaptations, but it's also a biographical true story. So how can he actually handle a script and a piece of fiction that's based on source material that actually happened? And I want to give the writers a lot of credit for this film. They shied away from just being a straight up one-to-one video game adaptation, you know? Because it is a biographical true story... The story really lends itself to a unique fourth wall breaking attitude towards its source material. And what I mean by that 
is that the movie can actually reference the video game in a fourth wall breaking sense where you can actually have the product Gran Turismo sitting on a shelf. You can actually reference the video game, the PlayStation, the driving simulators and the steering wheels and all the peripherals and stuff without having to actually go based off the story of the video game. Pretty much like Super Mario Brothers, right? The story is built around Bowser kidnapping Peach. But in here, there is no actual story to base off of in the video game itself. The story is the world and the true story that happened around the video game. So I think it's a pretty cool and strange twist on being a video game movie per se. Now, if you want to compound that really cool concept with Neil Blomkamp's involvement, I think this could be a big winner. And you look at the recent hot streak of PlayStation adaptations and their projects, I think there's a lot of confidence with this movie. Recently, we've seen adaptations of The Last of Us, Uncharted, and Twisted Metal. I mean, everyone knows The Last of Us is actually a critically acclaimed television series. Uncharted was lukewarm with critics, but actually hit big with audiences and made a ton of money. And Twisted Metal, it's kind of going to get a cult following. I don't think a lot of people are responding to it the way that they had originally expected. So, now with those three adaptations out of the way and Gran Turismo, there's other developments in the pipeline for Sony. They have God of War coming out. Horizon Zero Dawn is getting an adaptation, and Ghost of Tsushima is also going to get a film adaptation. And in comparison to even Sony's projects that have come out, I don't think I would put Gran Turismo on the level of The Last of Us. It's not profound or going to have that lasting impact on society the way that The Last of Us had, but I really did enjoy this movie. I was right in suggesting that this was going to be a winner for PlayStation and Sony. It's a very fun and energetic film. There's a lot of great racing sequences and some excellent acting performances that make this stand out from your cookie-cutter video game movie. I already mentioned that Blomkamp does have a very unique style. A lot of the time in his other films, especially District 9, he does a lot of crash zooms and over-the-shoulder shots. He wants to put you in the middle of the action when the action is happening. Gran Turismo pretty much does the same. However, his spin on it is that he actually incorporates a lot more of the classic video game chase sequence shots. He uses a plethora of camera angles and shots which are captured by drones that are over the back of the vehicle, overlooking the road, almost like you're playing at the third-person perspective of the video game where you can see the car actually angle and turn. And there's even racing lines that you can see on the screen that kind of give us an indication of how Jan pictures the road and how he pictures himself driving through the courses. It's actually kind of cool. He blends those real shots with the imaginations of the car's interior, the HUD, the driving lines, and it gives us a peek into Jan's perspective like he's controlling the Gran Turismo racing simulation. It's done with intention that we are filling the immersion into the world of racing, and it gives the sequences kind of an abstract surrealism to their set pieces. It's kind of unique, and I really enjoyed the way the action is handled here. It's pretty cool and unique. Now, I talked about the acting. David Harbour, to me, is a clear standout amongst the cast. His sharp, witty, dry humor, it's like expertly laced 
in the semi-seriousness of the events that this movie is based off of. Now, I'm not saying that the movie takes itself too seriously or that the other characters are not portrayed very well, but Harbour is just so fucking good in this movie. He is such a lovable asshole. It really does feel genuine and unique, and Harbour really gives this character a lot of ethos and pathos. This character could have been very one-dimensional had it been given to a different actor. As for Archie Medeque, the kid doesn't have a big filmography. He's been in films like Midsommar, Bo is Afraid, Les Miserables. But in this movie, I think he's a compelling hero, despite his cliche daddy issues. I do buy into his character being nerdy enough to devote his life to esports, while also being athletic enough to buy into his athleticism when he becomes a racer. I won't spoil the film just yet, but there's a major sequence in this film, which you've probably seen in the trailer, that I absolutely was unaware of going into this movie. And when it happens... The movie takes a real dramatic hard turn, and Medekwe is given some great material to stretch his acting chops. It is so tragic, yet uplifting, and I cannot wait to see what Medekwe does with his career going forward, barring people actually go out and see this movie. One thing I do love about driving movies is about the sound mixing. James Mangold's Ford vs. Ferrari was basically car porn for the years uh mad max fury road was like an overload of senses and gran turismo pretty much follows suit it has a very good use of sound mixing and sound design from the throttle of the nissan gtr to the way that enya's orinoco flow is used behind the 24 hours of le mans race i would recommend seeing this movie with dolby presentation turned on whether that's Going to a movie that has Dolby Cinema or turning on Dolby Atmos, you'll get a lot from the audio experience of this movie. I mentioned before that there is a clever implementation of audio and visual effects from the video game that work well here too. For example, in one of the qualifier races, Jan stays relatively behind the pack throughout most of the race, and each and every lap he slowly climbs his way up the pole, and every time he finishes a lap, The movie kind of does this freeze frame with an audio cue that's ripped straight from the video game and gives you a little bit of a HUD that displays what place he's in. So, for example, it says 7th lap, 8th place. It's a neat little Easter egg that I appreciate, and I think it may have been a little overused sometimes, but it's really cool to hear the sound effect from the video game actually implemented in the movie itself. It's kind of cool. Overall, I think Gran Turismo is a fresh spin on getting a gaming IP in front of massive audiences. It's pretty smart in the way that it's marketed, if you ask me. And I think people are going to really enjoy this movie. It's a crowd pleaser. It's a swift, enjoyable way to spend two hours. And yeah, I, I can easily see there being more of these movies in the future. So one thing I started with last week's Blue Beetle episode is I want to go into a segment where I talk about things I didn't like about the movie. Now, in this segment, I want to talk about some of the opposition that critics are having with this film and why it doesn't have this standard 75 certified fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I think this movie does have some structure issues. It sort of rushes throughout the final two acts of the film, and as I mentioned, that that big incident that happens towards the end of the film It's pretty significant, but because the movie spends so much time in the first and second act building the credibility of the GT Academy and Jan getting his racing license and his dynamic with his family, 
the tragedy of the third act doesn't really get a lot of screen time. There's not really a lot of room to breathe. And I wish that more of the film's runtime was dedicated to exploring the complexities of of Jan's situation when that incident happens at the end. But I'll talk more about this particular pain point in my spoiler-filled review later in the episode. But besides my issues with the plot organization, I do feel like the movie suffers from a lot of generic racing tropes that many films before it have fallen into. You have the reluctant hero that has a disapproving father figure telling them they can't do anything in life. The grizzled retired former athlete that goes from adversarial mentor to best friend. And of course, the corporate stooge that only thinks about the endorsements and money. (laughs) It's very by the numbers in the way that it's uh, structured and plotted. The style and source material kind of picks up the slack for most of the cliches that we see here on screen, but similar to how I felt about Blue Beetle last week, if you've watched other racing movies, you've likely seen this one. Alright, so we all know this is a Sony picture, but can we please fucking cool it on the product placement? Okay, so we know this is a Sony picture, but can we please fucking cool it on the product placement? My god man, it gets so distracting in this film. There's a big emotional beat in the movie that actually hinges on a Sony Walkman and an MP3 player that Jan purchases, and it's a a Sony MP3 player of all things. I think at this time, this was based in 2009 or 2010, that MP3 player would have been an iPod. (laughs) Let's just be honest. But because Sony is funding the film and it's because it's their property, they have to put in Sony products. You even see characters wearing Sony XM headphones throughout the movie. And I don't think they were around back in uh, 2009. Kind of an oversight, but definitely meant to be product placement there. (laughs) In fact, some of the dialogue pertaining to the product placement is eye-rolling. There's an instance where Danny Moore, who is Orlando Bloom's character, says something like, This is the most realistic racing simulator on the planet. (laughs) And then later on, you got Jan saying, Oh, it's not a video game. It's a racing simulator. (laughs) It's, It's very on the nose. You can tell that the characters are saying it to the consumers, which is the audience. It's, it's pretty funny. David Harbour's Jack Salter even remarks that a Lamborghini that is very clearly the villain of this movie is an eyesore compared to the Nissan GTR that these guys are racing. I mean, come on, dude. Lamborghinis are fucking sexy. They are amazing pieces of machinery. And the one in this movie is particularly decked out in gold. And for him to say it's an eyesore, I'm like, come on, man. Like, (laughs) how much did Nissan pay you to say something like that in this movie? (laughs) Oh, man. That's just a minor gripe. I think the product placement is on the nose, but it's a racing movie. Of course, there's going to be product placement. I could look past that. One thing I couldn't really look past is the antagonist of the film, played by Joshua Stradowski. He's a very important role in Jack Salter's motivations, but he really is a one-dimensional dickhead hotshot driver. His antics in the movie don't really make much sense to me other than to give Team Nismo uh, and the audience someone to root against. Stradowski is completely believable as a dick, don't get me wrong, but the character really does not leave much of an impression in the overall story, and I really don't think that he gets his comeuppance or 
a gratifying conclusion by the end of this movie. It's kind of whatever. So, those are the things I disliked about Gran Turismo. Let's go into my overall impressions. By the number, this movie shouldn't be as entertaining as it is. There's a bit of heart here, despite the very cold and corporate presentation of the subject matter. Blomkamp does a lot visually to make this movie stand apart from other racing biopics, and I came away very surprised and fully satisfied with it. I don't know if Gran Turismo will make my end-of-the-year top 10 list, but I surely had a great time and I will likely watch this movie again when it hits streaming, or I might even buy it on Blu-ray on a 4K Blu-ray sale sometime around Black Friday or something. It's a good enough film to own, but I I won't go out of my way to buy it first day for 40 bucks. (laughs) Now, if I were to rate this movie, I would rate it a third place podium finish. Doesn't get the gold, doesn't get the silver, it gets a bronze, which means in terms of my out of five scale, I would rate it about a four out of five. I liked it almost as much as I liked Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which is a big compliment in my opinion. For a movie that I felt was very cliched, I do love aspects of this movie and will absolutely come back to it later on. So that's my opinion of Neil Blomkamp's Gran Turismo. Let's get to Act 3 and break down the reception and filmmaking factoids. Alright, so currently on Rotten Tomatoes, Gran Turismo is holding steady with a critical rating of 61% with consensus saying that Gran Turismo's brisk action and feel-good underdog drama are undermined by its loose telling of the fact-based story, but this is still a generally solid racing movie. I agree there. Audiences are currently holding this movie at 98%. I wasn't lying when I said this movie would be a crowd-pleaser. It's a very easy and palatable film for audiences of all ages, and they seem to disagree with the critical negativity surrounding the liberties the story takes place with its source material and with the blatant product placement. (laughs) People just want to have a good time at the movies, man. And this is a good time at the movies, and the audience score is showing that. On CinemaScore, it has an A-plus by the uh, audience, so people really like this movie. (laughs) One thing I'm going to do differently this week compared to last week is I want to talk about the comparison and rankings to recent video game adaptations for Gran Turismo. Now with superhero movies kind of on the decline and video game adaptations becoming mainstream and are seemingly the next big thing in Hollywood, I want to take a look back at some of the more recent video game adaptations and rank them in comparison to Gran Turismo. The criteria for this ranking will be all films, and they all have to have come out within the past 10 years. Also, nothing that is not a video game itself but is written about video games will qualify here, such as Pixels, Ready Player One, Free Guy. Those movies don't count even though the subject matter is about video games. They're not based on a video game per se. The list will also not include television series like The Last of Us, Fallout, and Twisted Metal. Let's start off with number 14 because there are 14 movies that are on my list. The very worst video game movie that I've seen in the last 10 years is Monster Hunter, starring Mila Jovovich. That movie is a complete fucking shit show, and I don't even think her husband, the director, Paul W.S. Anderson, even played the video game. The movie makes no attempt to even make it remotely like the video game in any matter. It's a generic military shooter movie 
in the middle of the desert. <laughs> it's so bizarre and so stupid. I can't believe people actually paid money to go watch this, even though it was mostly streaming. At number 13, Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. With the aforementioned Mila Jovovich series of Resident Evil movies being sidelined and ended, Capcom wanted to reboot. They wanted to get a film franchise that was more accurate to the video game. So in Welcome to Raccoon City, you see more of the main characters like Jill Valentine and Chris and Lance Reddick comes out in it and he plays uh, the villain in it. They tried to do too much in such a short amount of time that the movie feels disjointed and almost like a fan fiction film. It is so stupid. It is so outrageous. I can hardly watch it and it breaks my heart because I like Lance Reddick and this movie just ain't it, chief. Speaking of video game movies that ain't it, at number 12, I have to say Assassin's Creed starring Michael Fassbender. I wanted to love this movie. I'm a huge Assassin's Creed fan. And you have the likes of Jeremy Irons, Michael Fassbender, and then you have Marion Cotillard, who is an Academy Award winning actress. What can go wrong? Well, everything could go wrong. The movie is so bland and boring and stupid. And the most interesting aspect of the film, the aspect where he goes into the animus, it goes nowhere. It's only for like five minutes of runtime. He doesn't use the animus enough. It's so weird to me that a franchise such as Assassin's Creed, where the big criticism is they spend too much on the stupid modern-day plot in the video games, that they follow the same exact problem people had with the video games into the movie. They spend way too much runtime of the movie in the actual Abstergo lab than in the historical setting that they want to tell the story about. It is so bizarre, and Assassin's Creed was a movie that I... I just absolutely hated, man. I did not like that movie whatsoever. And we're never going to get a sequel. That movie flopped bad. <laughs> At number 11, we have Need for Speed starring Aaron Paul. Another by-the-numbers racing movie. Um, it has a little bit of a revenge kick edge to it. There's a lot of nods to the video game, but honestly, it's just really forgettable. It's not It's not great. It kind of has Aaron Paul screaming and crying half the time, which isn't much of a character personality. If you ask me, it's just a lot of whining, and Need for Speed is highly forgettable. Much like this next movie, Rampage, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Rampage, of course, is a 2D beat-em-up from the arcade days of the 80s and 90s. Rampage is... A very fun movie. Has a lot of cool CGI of big dinosaurs destroying the city and Dwayne The Rock Johnson doing his thing. But this movie kind of came out around the same time that he did that other movie, San Andreas. So him running around a CGI Los Angeles as it's being ripped apart and destroyed, I kind of just forgot about it. And that <laughs> kind of is why it's number 10 on the ranking. At number 9, I have Tomb Raider. The reboot starring Alicia Vikander. I loved the reboot of the video games. And I love Alicia Vikander. But this movie did not culminate in what I expected. It sets up a sequel that we're never going to get. Once again, it's just a generic film that took liberties with the source material. And wasn't as good as the video game. So sadly, Tomb Raider did not strike a chord with anyone either. 
At number eight, and this is going to surprise a lot of people, I have the Super Mario Brothers movie. In all fairness, this is a better movie than a lot of people would have expected. And I think that's why it's it hit so big critically, and it was a $1 billion movie this year. It made a billion dollars at the box office. But I didn't like it. I think it's far too cartoony. Uh, and I know it, just saying that out loud feels kind of wrong because it's a Super Mario Brothers movie. It's supposed to be intended for children. But giving it to a studio like Illumination Studios where they really do overdo it in like fart jokes and immature children's comedy. There wasn't a lot in this movie for adults. Yeah, there's all the cliched like, oh, I remember that. I remember that. Oh, that's from the video game. All those little Easter eggs and member berries. They don't do it for me. And I think Super Mario Brothers just kind of relies on that too much. I think this movie could have been unique could have been special, but instead it just ends up as a generic Illumination Studios picture. At number seven, I have Uncharted. We mentioned it before as another Sony PlayStation Live adaptation. Uncharted is a fine movie, but I think it's bogged down by some horrifically bad casting decisions. Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg are not Sully and Nathan Drake whatsoever. I do not see them as the roles. I think Chloe is fine. They, they should have got someone besides Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg. And I think they only casted them because they are in the studio circuit of casting. Tom Holland does mostly Sony pictures. And they needed a big name for the film. And they're like, oh, we could kind of work with Tom Holland as, as Nathan Drake. Let's just throw him in, make him younger, and make him not shoot guns. Which is the exact opposite of what he fucking does in the video game. Nathan Drake in the video game is kind of a serial killer. He's going around killing bad guys like crazy and dual wielding pistols and stuff like that. But in Uncharted, this is like a G-rated baby version of the video game. And I didn't like it too much. I did like it more than Super Mario Brothers. And that's only because the, there are some really cool sequences that are ripped straight from the video game. But besides that, I think Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg were an absolute disaster of casting choices for this movie. At number six, we have Mortal Kombat from 2021. I think this is a better movie than people give credit for. Now, yes, there's some stupid shit in there. I think a lot of people don't like the character that they created for the movie, which I'm pretty sure they might implement him into the Mortal Kombat 1 video game uh, coming out next month. But as for the movie itself, I think it does a good job of world building. We get to see Outworld. We get to see Earthrealm. I like the casting of Kano in particular. And the use of fatalities in this movie is actually great. And I really wish that we could have seen more out of it. And that's particularly why it's now ranking higher on my list. I'm hoping with the Mortal Kombat sequel movie, they could do more with it. And we'll see more blood and guts and the iconic fatalities of the video game implemented into the sequel. At number five, we have Sonic the Hedgehog, the original one. This movie benefits from the internet completely shitting on the original design of Sonic, and they went back and made him look like the actual video game character. And I appreciate the filmmakers for doing that. It costed a lot of money for them to remake the film with a new design of Sonic, and he is a beautiful depiction of Sonic. The movie is really fun. It has a lot of heart. Sure, it's not like the best movie ever, but I had a lot of fun with it. And unlike the Super Mario Brothers movie, 
the movie does have a lot for adults to enjoy and it's particularly why they went off and did a sequel but sonic the hedgehog one solid movie at the box office solid movie overall at number four this one is going to be very controversial but at number four i have warcraft Warcraft, directed by Duncan Jones, who directed one of my favorite films of all time, Source Code. He's also the son of David Bowie. He's a huge video game nerd, and he loved Warcraft, and so it was natural for him to direct this film. And Warcraft, in my opinion, is pretty cool. It's pretty good. It does a lot of things in the middle of the movie that subvert audience expectations. The main character, the main orc, gets killed off pretty crazily and almost nonchalantly. And to me, that's like very startling. It's bold filmmaking. This movie makes a lot of bold choices in adapting its source material. It's beautiful. And it's one of those movies that I can throw up on my television on 4k and showcase people how beautiful my TV is. It has a lot of really nice stunning CGI. And I think it gets a bit of a bad rep. It's a lot better than what people expect. And at number four, I liked Warcraft. I'm going to defend that opinion. (laughs) Number three, we talked about him with the last pick. Sonic the Hedgehog is back. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is my third best video game adaptation of the last 10 years. And that's because Sonic the Hedgehog 2 takes the fun, original campiness of the original film. And it adds more of the Sonic universe in there. You got Knuckles. You got Tails. You have Super Sonic that comes out. It's so much more in line with what we came to expect from a Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Focusing more on Sonic and his powers and the Chaos Emeralds. It's a beautiful movie. It's very funny. It does have a few moments where it is a bit cringy, in particular the wedding sequence. But I didn't mind it. I had a lot of fun with Sonic the Hedgehog 2. And it's a movie that I will defend as well. I think it's a very good adaptation of the source material. I enjoyed all the references. And I think Idris Elba as Knuckles is one of the greatest casting choices for a voice I've seen in in quite a while. I loved it. Idris Elba as Knuckles. And so Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is number three on my list. Number two, I would put Gran Turismo. I think this is a very solid movie, very likable. People are going to respond to this positively. It's a crowd pleaser. And it's certainly a cut above the rest in the way it's designed and with how impactful it is. Gran Turismo, it's my second favorite video game adaptation film of the last 10 years. And at number one, we have... Detective Pikachu. That movie really surprised me. And I love the world building of Detective Pikachu. I want to live in Viridian City. I want to live in Vermilion City. I want to see what can be done on the big screen with the Pokemon IP. Because the way the characters look, the way the Pokemon look, it is gorgeous. It is amazingly done. The comedy is very funny. I loved Ryan Reynolds's uh, buddy cop comparison with the main actor in this movie. It's very fun. It's very memorable. And it scored positively with critics and audiences. I think Detective Pikachu is highly underappreciated, but this is a good launching point if Nintendo and the Pokemon company decides to branch out and make a bigger Pokemon cinematic universe. This is a very good starting point, and I love Detective Pikachu. I know this episode is running a little bit long, and while there's only so much time to record it, 
I will definitely revisit some of these films in the future, maybe do episodes based on Sonic the Hedgehog or on Warcraft alone, and we'll discuss those in greater detail. But with that being said, let's get into filmmaking factoids and round out this episode. The first filmmaking factoid, and it's a very big substantial selling point of this film, the real Jan Martinborough was hands-on with the making of this film. So much so that when Neil Blomkamp was looking for stunt drivers to perform the racing sequences, Jan, the actual person himself, volunteered and was offered the prime stuntman role. So in actuality, the race scenes where Jan is racing at the GT Academy and at Le Mans, that was actually performed by Jan Martinborough himself as the stunt person in the vehicle. That's like if Rams quarterback Kurt Warner volunteered to play the stunt quarterback as himself in American Underdog. (laughs) It adds to so much immersion into the film. And when you see him perform some of the stunts, knowing that that's the actual person that the movie is based on doing those stunts, it adds to the realism. And I appreciate that aspect of the filmmaking. Orlando Bloom's character, Danny Moore. He's not a real character, but he's inspired by the real-life Darren Cox. Cox was a former Nissan Europe executive who founded GT Academy in 2008 with the help of the Sony PlayStation for racing gamers to have a chance to become professional racing drivers. The GT Academy was an actual real show that aired on Spike TV in 2008. It continued on for eight seasons through the Speed Network, and it included both a European version of the series and an American version of the series. I want to go back and I want to watch that real show to see and compare what we're seeing on screen here. Now, with the development of the GT Academy, it had me curious as to what other sports can pull off such a conceptual rags-to-riches athletic competition like this. Perhaps in the future... Can we see a Madden champion strap up shoulder pads and play a snap in the NFL? (laughs) Probably not. It'd be very funny, though. He takes a snap and gets his head ripped off on the first play. (laughs) Like, uh, not another teen movie. (laughs) Maybe 2K could have a world's greatest NBA 2K players competition, where the greatest 2K players can do a 5-on-5 against the starting lineup of the Utah Jazz or the New York Knicks or something. Someone that they possibly could stand a chance against. (laughs) That would actually be kind of entertaining and fun. I would love to see that. I've always wanted to see what an NBA team can do against a streetball crew. And this would kind of open ourselves up to that possibility. But for my money, the video game adaptation that I would love to see play out in real life would be, I want to see the world's greatest sniper in Call of Duty get recruited into the army. (laughs) i'm just kidding that i mean from for the most part some of the greatest call of duty players already serve in the army and the the marines and the uh military so that's not much of a far stretch i just think that that's funny just hey kid you're really good at that video game how about you serve in the front lines for us Yeah, no, that's never going to happen. But I do want to say that I I do highly endorse Gran Turismo. It's a great time at the movies and definitely worth checking out when it comes to 4K Blu-ray and digital streaming. 
But with that being said, we've come to the end of the spoiler-free segment of the episode. If you wish to talk more about Gran Turismo and learn about the direct plot details of the film, stay after my outro music for our spoiler talk. If you want to remain spoiler-free, I ask that you pause the show, go watch the film, and come back because we have a lot to discuss. If you haven't already, feel free to subscribe and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our YouTube by searching for Post Credits with Gil Garcia, so you don't miss an episode. On social media, I'm at GilX87 on Twitter, or X as they call it, and my username on Instagram is Gilly087. Next week, we'll be doing something special. We won't be talking about a new theatrical released film, but instead we'll be reviewing another video game adaptation, and I assure you, we will have a spine-ripping good time. (laughs) So that's all for me today. I want to thank you for listening to the show. Stay after for our spoiler talk, and as always, go watch a movie. This is a spoiler alert. This is a spoiler alert. Alright, right off the cuff, I was completely oblivious to the severity of the crash in this film. I thought the trailers were already giving too much away and that it was just going to be a cliched comeback story at the end and perhaps even leaving Jan crippled or unable to compete again. Perhaps not knowing the original true story helped me enjoy the film more, because I was not prepared for the fact that Jan Martinborough actually killed someone. When that detail breaks in the hospital scene that his accident claimed a victim, I was shocked and heartbroken. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? What a devastating piece of true life tragedy that got buried under the lead of the marketing of this film. I really respect that the filmmakers didn't include that detail in the trailer because honestly, That is such a substantial, impactful moment for the characters and for the person himself. I cannot believe that it actually happened in real life. Now, now I'm not going to lie, though. In a bit of dark humor, I said to myself when it happened, in kind of a Dewey Cox impersonation, See what your games do, Sony? They kill people. No, but all seriousness, though, it's a truly horrific event, and I felt such a rush of joy and optimism when Jan finally, triumphantly, comes back and returns to racing. And props to David Harbour. There's a moment in the film where he gives a speech on the track that the accident occurred at in Germany that was performed by David Harbour, and it was so compelling, and it was excellently performed. It was heartfelt, but not hammy. It was inspiring, but not cheesy. And it made Jan's comeback at Le Mans that much more heroic and triumphant. And although he doesn't win first place, getting on the podium does put a bookend on what they said in the start of the film, that simulation drivers will never be on the podium. Well, winning third place is pretty much like a big victory for simulation drivers. And it does put forward the impact that 
video game players can perform real athletic stunts in real life, and I think that that's a compelling message. I did mention in the spoiler-free section of the show that I had issues with the film structure, and it's particularly because this crash is kind of forced onto the third act. I think there's so much about this crash that needs to be told, and because it's crammed into the final 30 minutes of the film, there's a lot of tension that just gets relieved by throwaway lines. I imagine there's a lot of intrigue and a lot of investigations involving Sony and Nissan and their part in taking responsibility for the accident, but none of that really seemed important to the story that they were telling here. A lot of it does get swept under the rug with a couple throwaway lines from Danny Moore that tells Jan after he recovers from his injuries, and I think I wanted to see more of that wrinkle in the story. I think it would have been very compelling to see some courtroom drama to provide an actual obstacle and variable to the racing set piece, and it would have heightened the stakes significantly. The fact that we spent so much time building up an antagonist for him, whereas this could have really been the inciting incident and the antagonist of the story, it it kind of bums me out, because I think that there's a lot more they could have told about this story and the victim that got claimed that day that the accident happened. But... Regardless, I think it does make the movie a lot more tighter by having the the movie laid out as three acts where the first act is him winning the GT Academy, second act is him winning his license, and the third act, him overcoming adversity and earning third place at Le Mans. However, because it follows the journey of him winning third at Le Mans and the success of the GT Academy, the significant life-altering moment for Martinborough is left feeling like a small, insignificant road bump in the overall runtime of the movie. But like I said, they had to keep the movie tight and focused and structuring it with the three acts that way. It kept the movie feeling fresh the whole way through. I want to talk about Jamon Hansu. This guy is an incredibly underappreciated and underserved actor. Every time he appears in a film or a show, he knocks out about a day or two of filming and calls it a day. But the problem with that is that these small scenes that he's in are so fucking incredibly good. I mean, we've seen him in Shazam, Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain Marvel. He was even in A Quiet Place Part 2, Black Adam. He's always so fucking good, and he's actually been nominated for two Academy Awards for fuck's sake, but I feel like he's being typecasted as this like aging mentor slash reluctant guardian for the protagonist in every movie he does now. He always has five and unders in every film. All I'm saying, let's put some motherfucking respect on my man's name, because Jamon Hansu is so good of an actor, and he is amazing in this film for the four minutes that he's in (laughs) in particular there's the moment in the movie where he reunites with Jan before the race at Le Mans and it feels so powerful it's the first time that these two have seen each other for the better part of a year and Hansu's tears and ethos is so gripping and real that it actually kind of choked me up we have seen a lot of characters recently with daddy issues but the positive catharsis that these two characters display when they start hugging it out It's very well done in my opinion, and it elevates the story quite a bit. I've already talked about how much I like that this movie breaks the video game adaptation mold. It's told through a player's perspective. I love how it doesn't have to rely on cheap shot-for-shot recreations of iconic video game sequences. 
you know, like Uncharted had that airplane scene or the giraffe scene in The Last of Us. Sometimes having a shot-for-shot recreation of the source material doesn't always translate on screen, and sometimes it can feel like a hollow replication of those big moments of the video game. But with this movie, you don't have to worry about that at all. You can go in without any knowledge of the video game, the true story, or the results of the races, and find yourself having a good time. I think that's pretty much all I have to say about the spoilers of this film. There are really only about three big details that I wanted to get into. The three major races and action sequences really capture the imagination and attention to detail of Jan Martinborough's life. There was, of course, a romantic subplot, which I actually enjoyed, but it's a little forgettable. The budding rivalries with the other GT Academy contestants and the history between Jack Salter and the Kappa Racing Team, we don't really need to go into it that much. It's pretty standard. Now, I do feel like the film could have used a little bit of tightening in its pacing and structure overall, but I didn't feel like the two hours I spent watching Gran Turismo were wasted or boring. I think it's a very solid film. And with that, I hope you enjoyed this look into the fast-paced world of Gran Turismo. It has me incredibly hyped for Forza Motorsport, <laughs> which, which comes out in a week or two on Xbox. <laughs> uh, side note. Forza is a better franchise now than Gran Turismo. And I, I really do mean that. I, I do like Forza a lot more than Gran Turismo. And it would not be a post-credits episode without me taking a cheap shot at Sony as an Xbox fanboy. I do want to mention Forza is a better franchise now. And that's because it doesn't charge like $5 a pop for cars that should be in the game. Come on, Sony. That is so fucking scummy, man. I am... Mm. I have a lot to say about that, but let's not open up that can of worms. We've already made it to the end. So go out and buy Forza Motorsport on September 13th on Xbox and PC. (laughs) So with that, I'm going to go throw on some Enya or Kenny G and relax. I'll be back next week with a surprise film. And once again, I am Gil Garcia and you should go watch a movie.